On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. The Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dimitri Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Arpan Basu. Arpan, what's going on, man? Dimitri, I was wondering why you called. It's <laughs> <laughs> an out of the blue uh, call from Dimitri. I, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we'll figure out what we're going to talk about today. But also joining us on this call is, is Andrew Berkshire. So um, I guess we, we probably should talk about Yusperi Gakaniemi and the offer sheet that he signed. It seems like a, a reasonable topic for us. Andrew, uh, how's it going, man? Pretty well, pretty well. Just uh, you know, doing chores on days off. That's the whole summer, right? I gotta, I gotta preface this. I was really enjoying my summer. July, I don't know for you guys, it was was crazy for me. I was trying to cover everything with the expansion draft and the entry draft and free agency and everything. And so I was like, I'm gonna take all of August off. And for the first 26 or 27 days or so, like every morning, I'd wake up and I just like pop open my Twitter to see what happened. I'm like, oh, not the Jack Eichel hasn't been traded yet. Nothing's happening today. And I just put my phone away for the day. And uh, I was actually camping for a couple of days over this past weekend and very limited cell service. And so I decided to do my afternoon check-in on, on what was going on in the hockey world. And I was like, oh, there's an offer sheet. I better, I better get home, get out of the woods and, and maybe record a, uh, a podcast here because I feel like people are probably going to be pretty interested. So um, I, I'll start with this, Arpan. You, you can go first here. Um, just sort of like the timing on this, obviously you covering the team on a full-time basis for the athletic and everything. It seems like for the most part, uh, you know, we heard reports that we're wondering what Cartier's future, I guess, with the Canadians was, especially after the way the postseason ended with him being scratched in the Stanley Cup final and needing a new contract and sort of potentially being on the outs. And then I think Pierre Lebrun reported that the, the Hurricanes had even tried to trade for him before eventually executing this offer sheet. I guess from your perspective, were you kind of surprised by sort of the timing of this, whether this happened at all in the first place? Because it seems like for the most part, um, it was pretty quiet. And then all of a sudden this kind of dropped out of nowhere. Yeah, well, there is kind of a there is there is some sense to the timing of it. You know, a few days earlier, the Hurricanes locked up uh, Svechnikov on an eight-year deal, gave them a better idea of what their finances were going to look like. Um, you know, there's the obvious revenge factor here. Uh, that is that that the Hurricanes have have made no attempt to hide. Um, but I don't think that's the only thing at play here. I mean, they did create an offer. Um, that makes that makes it very difficult for the Canadians to match. Uh, the whole thing of the, the Hurricanes trying to trade for him—I mean, that's pretty standard practice, you know. I mean, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe when when Brian Burke acquired Phil Kessel, I mean, that was the same dynamic. Was that if you if you don't trade him to us, we're going to offer sheet him? Was kind of the the context yeah. of that whole thing. So, I think that's what was happening here. Is that listen, we're considering an offer sheet. If you want to work out a trade, maybe we should do that. I would imagine it was based around the first and third pick that would go as compensation and say, if you want something extra, then 
then we could do it that way. I don't know that to be a fact, but that would make sense to me. Um, so yeah, timing wise, it does kind of make sense. Carolina had taken care of their biggest ticket of the summer a few days earlier. There had been rumblings and and just talk that Tom Dundon was waiting for the first opportunity to go after someone on the Canadians that Kakinami was probably going to be that guy because he's the first of their of their young players who comes up as an RFA. So it wasn't that shocking. I would have preferred it not happen on a Saturday evening. Not only did it ruin your your camping trip, it, it kind of ruined my dinner plans that night. But uh, but yeah, I think other than that, the timing's not all that shocking. And frankly you know, my initial reaction was like, wow, it actually happened. Like, this is something that had always been in the background that, that, that was a possibility. I personally didn't think they would actually do it, but, um, but they did. Well, I guess the interesting wrinkle to this for me, I mean, there's so many, but one of them is we hear often how offer sheets don't happen in the NHL because teams fear retaliation against their own restricted free agents in the future, right? Where it's like, okay, well, if we go after another team's young player, when one of our guys comes up, we're really exposing ourselves to the potential here. So there's this kind of like uh, unwritten or unspoken agreement of everyone to just let their let themselves handle their business internally with their young players. And so the fallout of this was, oh man, like the, the hurricanes actually followed up on uh, the potential idea that they would retaliate here. And I wonder how this is going to affect future offer sheet scenarios and whether teams are going to be even more reticent if possible now to, to go the offer sheet route. And, you know, we're going to talk here about Kotkaniemi as a player and the angle for both the hurricanes and the Canadians and what the Canadians should ultimately do. But I don't necessarily view this one as like, oh, this is so disastrous from the Canadians and regardless of whether they let him go or keep him to the point where if you're another team, you're watching this and play out and say, oh man, I'm, I'm scared that this is going to happen to us. So we're definitely not going to offer sheet now. Like, I feel like this isn't that extreme of a scenario. Uh, no. I, well, it's not in the sense that, you know, I look at it two ways. If, if teams are looking at the Aho offer sheet and saying, well, man, they shouldn't have done that because look at the problem they're in now. What I would say as a GM, I was like, wow, they should have done a better job of offer sheeting Aho. You know, mm, <laughs> it's really, yes. it's really what it comes down to. And then you look at the Carolina offer sheet. And if I'm an, if I'm a rival GM, I'm like, that's how you offer sheet. You don't go after the top guys, you know, in this market, you know, that would include like Erasmus Dahlin or Brady Kachuk or the two guys in Vancouver. Those guys are going to be hard to offer sheet. You're going to have to pay, a ridiculous amount of money to get those guys, you know, in, in the eight figures. And so what you do is go after the next tier or even the tier below and grossly overpay those guys. And that gives you actual chance to acquire the player. And that's what Caroline has done here. You know, Kakinami is not worth $6.1 million right now could be in the future. And I, you could make the argument that, you know, it's, it's a calculated gamble for, for Carolina, but it's really not that huge of a gamble. It's you pay them a lot of money this year. You give up the two picks. If it doesn't work out, you know, you just don't qualify the guy and then, and you cut them loose. Like, so it's really not that huge of a risk. Uh, it's a bit of a bigger risk for the Canadians because there's a lot of politics attached to whether they would cut a guy loose or whatever, but from the Carolina standpoint, and if I were another GM, I would look at what Carolina did and say, how can we do that to acquire a promising young player uh, who could potentially grow in our organization, having already done three years of development with someone else? Right. The the whatever the six point one or whatever that they uh, came to was just conveniently under the threshold of costing them another second rounder in terms of compensation. So it was very mm -hmm. clearly mapped out accordingly. Andrew, how much of the decision to go after Kotkaniemi here from the Hurricanes is actually? 
born out of a thirst to to get revenge for that all offers you because that's obviously sort of the uh the first um kind of reaction to this and then obviously the fact that Wad- Waddell basically just copy pasted the the Bergevin quote after that and the $20 um signing bonus and everything like there's there's clearly part of that to the, to here in terms of the drama and the pettiness and the revenge factor but also it, it, the dialogue has been so centered around that that I feel like um there's been a lack of actual kind of conversation of how much the hurricanes themselves value Kotkaniemi as a player, what Kotkaniemi is as a player and like just the fit there, it's been so centered around, Oh, them just trying to get revenge. And it seems so bizarre to me that that would be kind of the leading discussion point of this. Well, I clearly revenge is a part of it, right? There's no denying that they, I think the the starting point was probably we're going to take somebody from this team, you know, like we're, or we're going to throw a wrench in this team, but they obviously clearly believe in Kokodemi as well. And I think that a lot of people are looking at like the center line of the Carolina Hurricanes and saying, like, where does Kokodemi fit? Is he even going to play center? And I think you have to look not at this year. You have to look at down the line. Trocek's a UFA next year. Uh, Jordan Stahl is a UFA the year after. So this is probably a move in terms of their thinking. They're going to overpay for now. And then he becomes a piece going forward when they're going to lose at least one of those two guys. And clearly they do believe in him because you wouldn't send this kind of money out to a player that you don't believe in at all. Like you still know that there's a chance that you're going to get this player. And if you do, you are also giving up picks in a very good draft year. So there's definitely like, I've had the opportunity to talk to somebody in hurricanes management and they fully believe that the Montreal Canadians should match this offer. That's how much they believe in Kokaniemi. So they think that he's going to be a good player. There's clearly issues with Kokaniemi still. Uh, he has, some issues with his first step acceleration. Uh, he has some issues with like putting his skills together on the ice where like essentially marrying his skating and his passing and his shooting all together into like smooth motions. But overall, I mean, we may see Kokaniemi and judge him more harshly because we've seen him too much. And I know there's a lot of people who are saying like, Oh, he shouldn't have been in the NHL at 18. I think a lot of that is like, it's a bit of a logical fallacy, like the post hoc ergo propter hoc. Like if somebody was in the NHL early, they shouldn't have been if they haven't worked out really quickly. But like we don't actually know how their development would have changed if they'd stayed in longer. And there have been lots of guys who stayed out of the NHL who just don't make it that we don't factor into that conversation, right? Of like what's the best development strategy? So a lot of it is you see somebody who marinated a long time in the AHL or in the European leagues have success, and you just assume that that's the best way when a lot of people fall through the cracks that way as well. I think that uh, Kokaniemi, if anything, would be better served by getting some line mates that play his style. Uh, I thought he had a pretty decent playoffs last year, but obviously not fantastic. Uh, but he was playing with probably two of, the, two of the players who were the worst possible match for him. Byron and Anderson are both guys who generate a lot of scoring off the rush, but they're individual players. Uh, they all their offense is generated off their own sticks, right? Like they're not give and go guys. Neither guy passes really well. And Kokanami, first of all, can't keep up with them skating wise, just based on like they're tr- guys that capitalize on transition plays, right? Puck turns over and they're off to the races. They want to drive straight lines into the offensive zone, cut in at the last second. And he doesn't really do that. So he likes to generate offense either on the net front through the cycle or through the forecheck. Neither of those guys do that effective uh, work on in any of those respects. So he's got nothing to work with, right? 
So it's an interesting situation that they put him in. I think that if he were to stay in Montreal this year, if they do match, the most likely scenario is he plays with Brendan Gallagher, who's like the center whisperer. I think uh, we'd have a very different idea of what Kokanami is capable of. He spends a whole season with Brendan Gallagher. Right. As a disclaimer, we should say we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. And by the time people listen, we might already know what the Canadians are doing. So I kind of wanted True. to get this out there and frame it as like, you know, we're going to set the seed. We're going to talk about all the potential angles. And so even after, after the fact, you know, whatever the Canadians wind up doing here, it'll still be useful to listeners. I think Arpen, like Andrew made that point here of, of how the hurricanes internally view caught Kanyemi. Uh, I have no doubt that they value him highly as a player beyond the fact that they signed up to the Zopper sheet because they did structure it so meticulously to the point where it does put the Hurricanes in a tough spot. Like I, I think you can kind of tell sometimes whether something is done out of pettiness and revenge and how much of it is them actually wanting this player. And it seems like we'll see what the what the Canadians wind up doing here. But I'm leaning towards them walking away, walking away from the player and letting him go just because it seems like it'll be so onerous for him to keep him. And so that makes me think of the hurricanes, the way they structured it really do want him. Yeah. I mean, they didn't, you know, listen, I understand Tom Dundon is made of money, but you don't just throw 6 million bucks at a guy for, for a few tweets, you know, for the benefit of like being able to own Twitter for an afternoon or an evening or whatever, like that's, that's just kind of the gravy or the, you know, the cherry on top that they do. And I think as Andrew pointed out, you know, there are, there are going to be holes in their lineup moving forward. Uh, Kakiyami is pretty tight with Aho and Teravine they skate together in the summer. And so that's another kind of added side bonus to this um, from a chemistry standpoint. And he's probably heard a lot about how, how life is playing for Rod Brindamore in Carolina as well. Kakiyami, I mean, uh, so yeah, I think there, this was a legitimate attempt to, acquire a player and is one of the more effective offer sheets we've seen in that respect. Um, having said that, yeah, my initial inclination is also that the Canadians should consider walking away, but um, that is all dependent on whether they're able to find a suitable replacement out there. And that's really what, what we're waiting on this week. I'm pretty sure Mark Bergevin and his management team have, have spent the bulk of this week looking around the league to see if that extra first round pick and what is considered a deep draft, as Andrew mentioned, um, coupled with, you know, a few of their, uh, one or two of their own picks, you know, not necessarily the other first, but maybe even the other first, depending on the caliber of player we're talking about. Um, if they can convert that into a suitable, not only replacement replacement for Cockney, I mean, but someone that they consider an upgrade in the short term, because what was clear from the Canadian standpoint is that they did not feel that Cockney was ready for a top six role in Montreal based on what they had seen over the last three years, whether that's right or wrong. I, I think that's debatable. Um, I was kind of of the mind that this is an opportunity, even if he hasn't displayed that he's necessarily ready for that. This was an opportunity for the organization to say, look, we we've invested in you. We believe in you. We're going to give you this opportunity. We're going to give you a shot at this second line center role uh, you take it and you run with it because we believe in you and, and we've already invested so much in you because we believe in you and we like you as a player. And, and Mark Bergevin's exact words were, you know, we believe in his potential. We like the peak of his game. The problem is that the peak of his game did not show up often enough for their liking. Uh, while in the same breath mentioning that he just turned 21. I think he turned 21 the day before the Stanley Cup final ended and he was watching from the from the stands. So, um, you know, there. I think... Kakanyemi has his share of responsibility for how things have gone over the three years in Montreal. You know, he hasn't been consistent. He hasn't 
necessarily fulfilled the role that he's been asked to play. And ultimately, as a player, that's your job in the NHL uh, is to adapt to what you're being asked to do. Uh, but I think the Canadians also have a play, have a role to play in in the situation being what it is, and and Kakanimi's willingness to sign this offer sheet that is not an obvious path back to the Canadians. Like Aho signing the offer sheet with the Canadians was different in that you could very reasonably, if you're Sebastian Aho, say, okay, I'm going to sign this. I'm 99.9% sure the Hurricanes are going to match this, and I'll be back there. I don't think Kakanimi could be saying that right now. Like this was obviously signed with. Um, the realization that this could very well result in him going to Carolina. And I think the relationship is frayed somewhat because I believe the Canadians have not shown that unconditional belief in him that I think he's seeking and, and, and that the Carolina hurricanes have actually shown by, by dropping this offer sheet on him. Right. But so Aho, I mean, his was obviously a no brainer because he basically isn't burning UFA years on his offer sheet and he got, a crap ton of money that the hurricanes weren't going to willingly pony up in terms of signing bonuses, especially in like the basically first calendar. Oh, year and they were, they weren't going to, they weren't going to walk him to UFA either. I think that was the big one. Like walking him right to his first year of UFA was the big sticking point there. I think Carolina actually wanted to get his, his name on an eight year deal at that time. It's just a question of buying those UFA years and how much you paid for those UFA years. That was a problem. So by signing the offer sheet, Aho got the bunny and he got, walked directly to his first year of eligibility as a UFA. So it was a win-win for him, totally. Right. But similarly, with, with Kakiemi, I've already seen, uh, as expected, him sort of portrayed as kind of like a, a selfish villain here where it's like, oh, he's, he's not he's not falling in line as a team player. He's like looking out for himself. And I think similar to what we just said with Aho, if someone's offering you $6.1 on a one-year deal, if you're uh, in his current situation, I think in good faith, it would be completely unreasonable to expect him to turn that down from any team, regardless of whether it meant that he wouldn't be able to come back to Montreal and regardless of his feelings about the franchise. I mean, I just don't think anyone in their good mind, we can have a full conversation here about him as a player and his development path and what he could be worth down the road. But I think evolving hockey had him as like 1.5 million projection mm -hmm. on a one-year deal. Um, if you just look at some of the similarly sort of young, high draft pedigree centers that have signed similar bridge deals, Dylan Strom signed like 3 million for two years, Philip Heedle 2.5 for two years. Like I think everyone understandably so expected that type of a contract for him. And so if someone comes to you and says, Hey, we're going to give you three times that, and you're going to have all of this future leverage. I just find it impossible to turn that down. So I, I wanted to make that clear where I, I don't blame him at all for this because it was a perfectly reasonable no. move that I think every one of us would have similarly done. Absolutely. If somebody's going to pay me like three times what I'm supposed to be getting paid, I'm going to sign on that dotted line right away. Yeah. And not only three times what I'm supposed to be getting paid, but like set me up to be paid three times what I'm supposed to be paid next year as well. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, or walk straight to UFA. Yeah. Like it's, it's really a no brainer for him, but I think, I do think, you know, the situation in Carolina looks appealing to him. You know, he's, he's seen two of his close friends thrive there. Um, not to mention the guy who was picked right before him in the draft. So I think, yeah, your point is valid, but I think the the destination also had something to do with it. The, the, the team that he's going to and watching how they trust their young players and put them in situations to succeed was probably pretty appealing to him as well. Do you, um, Andrew, do you think like, I think there's such a fascinating bear convo to be had here about, the way we've been conditioned as fans and analysts following the NHL 
to just expect RFAs to basically take these team-friendly deals that box them in. And then by the time they're 27 or 28 years old, then they can finally cash in for the for, for what they've earned throughout their career. And it's always been so bizarre to me because you could very fairly argue that um, the next four to six years of Kotka Tanimi's career are going to be easily his most productive ones where he's going to provide the most value to his team. And so he should as a young player get paid, every young player should get paid accordingly to that, as opposed to sort of biding your time and waiting for five years or whatever, when he can finally cash in on the open market. Like, it seems like there is a bit of a, not necessarily a reckoning, but a bit of a a change of the dynamics of the way we view RFAs and what they can get on their second, second deal. I just didn't expect Kotkaniemi, I guess, based on his production to be a player that could warrant and kind of wield that type of leverage. But I do think that is something we're going to have to consider more moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think teams are getting more wise to the fact that you want players in their early to mid-20s, right? And you look at the way that the NHL's trended over the past decade or so, things have changed a lot. Like, I had a conversation recently on my own podcast with uh, with Mary Clark talking about uh, which like of teams in a single season would be, would be like the best today. And we talked about like the LA Kings that won in 2011, who were like an unbelievable, unstoppable juggernaut. And in today's NHL, they probably wouldn't be that great because most of their game revolved around volume shooting from the perimeter, right? Like, and tipping pucks and all that. And that style of play has kind of been killed. Everything's about getting pucks in tight, shooting from high danger areas, moving the puck across the goal crease. They'd be great defensively still because they did all that in terms of preventing it. But in terms of scoring, they, they would really struggle in today's game. The game changes really fast. And I, I think that's kind of the advantage of hockey being a bit of a niche sport in a lot of ways in like for the last 30 years or so where like things have changed dramatically. Goaltending has changed dramatically over my lifetime. And things evolve, how we view things, uh, how we view young players and the players as well as management are getting wise to that and maybe executing their, their leverage a little bit more efficiently. I wonder if the whole, if this whole RFA reckoning would have gone a bit faster if the whole Mitch Marner situation didn't get so blown out of control and everyone, you know, now criticizes Kyle Dubas for giving out those gigantic contracts. But I think if you remove that from the equation, most of the RFAs who've established themselves in their like rookie contracts are now getting big contracts. And I've been arguing since the playoffs that the smartest thing the Canadians could have done is right after those playoffs ended, extended both Suzuki and Kokaniemi to eight-year contracts. And like, yeah, you're going to pay more than you want to right now, but you're going to save over the course of the rest, like the prime of their careers. And they've been caught previously with the bridge deal things. And sometimes it makes sense to do a bridge deal, but when you're constantly pushing these bridge deals, you can get caught if that player breaks out and say wins a Norris, and then you get stuck with an arbitration hearing that you're really not comfortable with. So betting on the young kids, if you actually do believe in them, I think is the smartest thing you can do as a manager. Um, well, Arpin, I, Andrew talked about the usage here for Kakanami, and, and you've talked about sort of the landing spot for him potentially on the Hurricanes and what they could get out of him. I guess that's the big determining factor here for me and the thing I've been trying to figure out. Uh, obviously, I think people are going to point to the fact that he's 21 years old, that he is a former third overall pick, and that you don't want to write off a player at that point of their career because they still have so much room to grow. We have seen him in the NHL for the better part of three seasons now. And I'm so torn on my evaluation of him as a player, because when you watch him, you can sort of see the the tools that people 
fall in love with, uh, with the vision and the playmaking and the touch and the passing and the reach and all that. But then I know I've seen like, uh, my colleague, David St. Louis, write about this and Jack on kind of breaking down the, the technical side and the mechanics of Kotkaniemi's skating stride and whether he possesses that dynamicism to actually sort of consistently separate himself from defenders and really become a top tier playmaker and live up to that potential. How much do we attribute his production and his numbers so far to sort of the situation he was in, whether it be the players he was playing with, um, you know, the environment in terms of the system and the, and the way the Canadians want to play where I wouldn't, I'd argue there isn't necessarily a ton of latitude for, you know, creativity and freelancing and, and, and East West action and, and, and stuff like that. It was much more of a sort of, uh, you know, bland meat and potatoes style of play. And then how much of it could actually sort of in a new different environment, get more out of Cockney versus this is just kind of who he is, even though he is only 21 years old. Um, I think, uh, I think a lot of what's happened, with Kotkaniemi over the first three years of his career based on uh, just a lack of physical maturity in a lot of cases. Um, I know that what was starting to frustrate Claude Julien with, with Kotkaniemi is that he couldn't stay on his skates. He was falling down a lot. He would, he would get knocked off pucks relatively easily, uh, especially in his rookie year and especially as his rookie year went along, not early, but, but later on. Uh, you know, you had an incident in his second year where he went into a corner with Nikita Zadorov and wound up you know, getting flipped onto his head and suffering a concussion. And, and it was a pretty scary looking thing. And that was, you know, that was a question of strength. And he was 19 at the time. It's kind of normal. So, you know, there was, I think there's been, I think he's shown enough. I find him to be a very smart player. I think he sees the ice very well. I think he understands the game super well. So like his brain is really his number one selling point. There are some mechanical issues as I mentioned, the strength issue, the skating's never going to be a strength of his at all, ever, even though he's working on it. Um, but the way he understands the game, the way he sees it, and the way he processes it um, is is a very strong attribute of his and something that's going to continue. Like, he's never he's never going to lose that, you know? So I think there's, there's a certain amount of assurance that he's going to be able to use that to make smarter, quicker, better decisions with the puck and without... Uh, over the course of his career. And that will only improve as he physically matures and, and has the other mechanical issues that you mentioned, which I think are valid, um, gets them corrected. So, you know, how much is on him? I don't know how much is on him. It's some of it is on him for sure, because he, he wasn't able to overcome those certain developmental deficiencies that he, that he still had in his game at the NHL level. Um, did he ask to be thrown in the NHL at 18? No. Um, that was decided for him based on one strong training camp. And as my colleague, Marc-Antoine Goudet pointed out on our podcast, and which I hadn't even thought about, if you think back to his first training camp, uh, that was a training camp where Max Domi sucker-punched Aaron, Aaron Ekblad in an exhibition game and got suspended for the rest of the exhibition season. So basically, Kotkaniemi walked into that spot and played every exhibition game as a center and with every game got better and better and better to the point where the Canadians really saw no reason to cut him. And from that point on, I mean, he had a good first half of his rookie year, uh, but then, you know, Claude Julien scratched him in Los Angeles. I remember clearly that day because we had just spoken to Kotkaniemi in the dressing room about playing with Jonathan Drouin in that game because that's where they, that's who he practiced with that morning and then Claude Julien came out and said he's going to be scratched tomorrow. So, it was, and from that point, it got it just it just started to be this series 
of of misses with this kid but i think his rookie season by and large was a success despite that but that that really did impact his his confidence and his and you know he was left wondering why that happened you know i mean the, he really didn't understand what had happened and how things had fallen so so drastically for him to become a scratch and then from that but from that point on it's been it's been a lot of you know relatively few highs and a lot of lows for him uh, in montreal so far well Andrew, he's had really strong defensive results in two of his three seasons, especially as a rookie, albeit in a sheltered role and, and playing with, with wingers that would help him with the defensive metrics and kind of alleviate a lot of those uh, adjustments to to a new league and a new pro league for a teenager. He had really good results defensively. And I wonder how much uh, of this is just baked around like the Canadians envisioned him being a certain type of player, which is this sort of like defensive center and how much of it is he's actually just should be positioned as more of a skilled playmaker and sort of pushed in that direction. It seems like, you know, he kind of got caught in the middle trying to figure out what he's going to be as a player, which is perfectly reasonable for a guy who just turned 21 years old, but it seems like he's kind of been miscast or maybe um, there's still an uncertainty about what he actually should be at this level. I, there's definitely uncertainty. I think there's definitely some diametrically opposed opinions between Kokaniemi and the Canadians on like what kind of player he's supposed to be. I don't know if that's necessarily over the defensive side of it. I think that he's fine uh, like being a good defensive player. I think that comes to like where they want him to play in the offensive zone. He seems to see himself more as a playmaking guy, and the Canadians want him to get like into the net front and smash home goals and stuff like that because he's got a big frame, right? He may not be strong physically yet, but he's got that big frame that when he fills it out should create some opportunity there. But you look at when he got sent down to the American Hockey League and he absolutely dominated down there under Joel Bouchard and he was full on a playmaker, right? He, I don't even think he scored a goal. He just piled up tons of assists with the Laval Rocket. And then he came back up to the NHL uh, expecting to, you know, play the same way. And he kind of got put more of in a shooting role again. And it just didn't fit. You know, like when you're constantly pulled in two different directions, it doesn't really make sense. And I think this is something that the Canadians kind of have an issue with overall in terms of development is they seem to be one of those teams where they're like, you're going to play this way sink or swim is up to you. And there's some value to that, but I think the teams that work with players to consistently develop skills to enhance what they're already good at and also work on their weaknesses seem to do better relatively consistency. And I consistently, and I wonder if the Canadians who get a lot of uh, crap, I would say for their poor drafting results over the last decade or so, if they had a more comprehensive approach into how they build their prospects up, we might be seeing a different result from their draft record, right? So much is about development versus who you actually pick. And I think that that's an underdeveloped uh, story in terms of like what we can cover, because it's just not something that teams really want to talk about in the first place. Anyway, like they don't want to tell you uh, how they're developing a player, like what they're doing specifically to, to get them to work uh, in a certain way or like what their plans are for them. They like to play things pretty closely to the vest. So you have to kind of look at the background and figure out what they're doing on your own and fill in the, fill in the gaps yourself. How do you feel about that sort of disconnect between uh, maybe the way the player viewed himself or the way he wanted to play and the way the team felt he needed to play to be successful? Because I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around what the path for him being a $6 million player is here. And 
it's going to be a massive improvement offensively, I think, right? Like beyond just obviously the empty calories of putting up points, like just in terms of being a prolific playmaker, like it seems like that is the most realistic path here towards providing legitimate value for whether it be the Hurricanes or the Canadiens. But um, it seems like a big leap based on what we've seen so far. Yeah, I mean, you look, I think the big disconnect with Kokaniemi, and it's one of the reasons I cautioned against uh, some of the folks who were using uh, like wins above replacement, to value him and uh, over the last couple of years. And a big issue with wins above replacement is that it heavily values like on ice goals for and goals against, which is great in terms of, of evaluating what a player brought in a specific season, but not great for predictive value. And Kokanami's goals impact has always been much smaller than his impact on shots and expected goals. So I, I look at a player who's got a lot of things going for him, but hasn't really figured out how to translate that yet into like the actual end goal and i say there's something there somebody's gonna figure it out but i do think there is stylistic issues where like the canadians do out or underperform their expected goals consistently right like that's been an issue for years now whether it's style of play or lack of finishing talent we could argue but uh, i think there's a lot to like about kokaniemi even if he never puts up like a crazy amount of points, I think that he will become an impact player in terms of like pushing play the right way. Uh, he reminds me a little bit of Lars Eller in that Lars Eller was a guy who consistently drove play, but always seemed to win. The puck was on his stick at the very moment when you wanted him to do the right thing. Oftentimes he would think too much and do the wrong thing. And Kokanami has that as well, where he just like gets in his own head. And if he can just kind of get confident enough to stop doing that, things might change for him. I think, yeah, that's the difference between him and Eller is that I agree that Lars Eller was oftentimes his worst, you know, his own worst enemy in the offensive zone. It, when it came to crunch time on, on what to do or the decision to make, uh, whether to shoot or pass and where to shoot and what to do with the puck at the very last, you know, the final piece of the whole sort of mise en scene of, of a scoring chance, uh, he, he tend to fro- freeze. Um, I don't feel Kakanemi does that nearly as often. I, I, and, and when he did do it, it's because he's being pulled in different directions. I think there is something to be said that the Canadians wanted him to learn to play a certain way before allowing him the freedom to play his own way. Like, but there, there's certain aspects of the game that you need to get, you know, into your game. You know, if, if there are two guys deep, you need to be the third man high, like the little adjustments that you just need to make when you're not necessarily the best player on your team. And this was the first time, you know, aside from his draft year when he was playing professionally in in Finland as a 17-year-old, this is basically the first time he'd ever played on a team where he wasn't one of, if not the very best player on his team. So that's normal. But it's true that, you know, I remember one time I was joking sometime in his second year, I was joking with him that, oh, like he, he gave me like some cliche NHL answer. I was like, oh, listen to you. You're like this big time NHL, you're like an NHL veteran. And his answer is like, I've gotten some pucks deep in this league and walked away. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> so, you know, it was like, it was a bit of a dig at like, you know, what he's asked to do. Like it was, it was, it was totally innocent, you know, but right. like that's, that's what he's asked to do. Like it's get the puck deep, go in there for check. Uh, you know, recover it, and then you, you can create your offense that way. Whereas he would probably prefer a controlled entry where he can kind of survey the scene, stop up, catch a trailer, whatever, you know, what he would prefer to do. Um, but, you know, to say that the Canadians forced him into that, I mean, I think they just wanted to, to, to get that part of his game sorted and then allow his 
natural abilities to flourish once that part is settled. But I would say that I think the Canadians do have a tendency to focus with their young players uh, to really emphasize what they don't do well, as opposed to what they do well. And this is something that they've had going back many years, going back even past coaches, uh, but really during Bergevin's time, and even maybe even before that, you know, Alex Galchenyuk, that was the thing. Everyone talked about what he didn't do well. P.K. Subban, what he didn't do well. Even Lars Eller, what he didn't do well. I mean, there there are many examples of young players in this organization where instead of focusing on what they do do well, um, that the focus immediately became the opposite of that. And that, A, I think hinders your ability to develop that player. You know, instead of always focusing on weaknesses, try to enhance strengths too at the same time and B impacts the confidence of the player, which leads to what, what Andrew was alluding to where you might find yourself in situations where you don't know what to do because you're not allowed to, you're not, you're not relying on your instincts. You're thinking of everything that you've been told and, and all of a sudden your instincts aren't good enough. And that, and that's when confidence becomes a real issue. Which one of us hasn't? gotten pucks deep at some point in our careers. It's, uh, yeah, but it's not a, in that league. Not no, in that no. league. That's the difference. <laughs> He's gotten pucks passage. deep in that league. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, let's take a quick break here, and then we're going to uh, finish up this conversation. Champions aren't born. They're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme? Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Forget the off-season work, Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
All right. Well, let's, um, we talked about Kakanimi as a player. We kind of talk about the the contract. I think from, from the Habs perspective here, the route they go is obviously um, the big last pillar here for us to discuss. I think the most logical move, if you just remove emotion from it and kind of look at the big picture and try to kind of piece everything together, it would be, I think you have to almost just take a step back, let him go, take the picks, uh, especially in this loaded draft coming up and either weaponize those picks to go and get a potentially better player than God Konami or take a step back this season and use those picks at the draft. Potentially it could be a lottery pick and, and see where you go from there. Um, you know, they've been linked to, to Christian Dvorak. They, Tomas Hurdle's name is coming up. Obviously Jack Eichel is still out there. Arpen, like what, what is your sense here in terms of um, the appetite for this organization? Obviously you'd say in, in any normal year, for the Canadians, there's pressure to be good and competitive and, and no one's going to want to just throw a year away, but especially coming off of a recent sort of Cinderella run all the way to the Stanley Cup final, it feels like there could potentially be some added pressure here for this team to, to not just uh, openly take a step back and actually try to to kind of go for it again as, as much as they possibly can. How much do you think plays into the decision here, especially you know factoring in that Philip Deno has already walked this offseason and that the center depth beyond Nick Suzuki is pretty bleak at this point if Kakanami's not on the roster. Well yeah, there's a lot of mitigating factors. I mean the, the you know the one obvious one is the one you mentioned that they did go to the Stanley Cup final last year. I think everyone can recognize that that was a unique circumstance. And frankly the Canadians recognized it, as did a bunch of other teams that this is going to be a unique opportunity. I think Toronto made some moves to that degrees knowing that this is going to be probably an easier path to get to the final than than they would ever see canadians took the exact same sort of thought process on on that and and loaded up last offseason in an attempt to do what they almost did um but there's a there's other mitigating factors here um you know mark bergevin's future as general manager is very cloudy he is not committed to to going on longer than his current contract which expires at the end of this season um and on top of that you know, I still don't think Mark Bergevin is going to allow his own contract status to impact any decision that he may or may not make. But, you know, there's a bunch of players who have committed long-term to this team in the last calendar year or so um, with the expectation that this team's going to compete. Uh, Joel Edmondson, jo- jo- Jake Allen signed an extension, Josh Anderson, Toffoli, Gallagher, Petrie, like all these guys who are not necessarily have tons of runway left to win. I- I'm not sure how that group would look at the Canadians almost intentionally taking a step back this year in order to, to kind of do another reload in the draft, you know, cause to, to an NHL player draft picks mean nothing. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they mean a player maybe two, three years down the line. And if you're Carey Price, two, three years down the line is way too late. But even if you're Brendan Gallagher, if you're Jeff Petrie, if you're all the guys I mentioned in two or three years, they're going to be out of their prime. So I think there are a lot of pressure points here um, that make this even more complicated in the sense that, Yes, I think under normal circumstances, if there weren't any of the things that I mentioned or you mentioned that the you know the Cinderella run last year, it would probably be a lot easier of a decision and and could it would be an easier sell to your players and your fans that listen, this happened, we're gonna let them walk, we're gonna take the draft picks, we're gonna use those draft picks in a very good draft, and we're gonna be better sooner as a result. Um that's a tough sell right now. To your fans, yes, but I think most importantly, in his own room, that would be a difficult sell to the players on the team on the Canadians right now. I just, I think though, Andrew, like 
not that not that this makes it an easier sell, but I'm not sure it necessarily matters one way or another this year in terms of Kotkaniemi or Dvorak or whoever would be the second center. When you look at the strength of the division, you look at the four teams that uh, I think everyone in, in their projections is going to have ahead of them. It's going to be a very, very, very uphill climb, even more so than it's been in years past. And I, I just, that's what makes like, just not that retaining God can here, obviously does a one-year contract, but you're sort of, if you do retain him and you don't let him go to Carolina, you're, you're sort of betting on him being that future second center for you. And it's more than just a one-year decision. Um, I, but I don't think that this coming season should be one that you're making any sort of short, short-term kind of misguided decisions based on just because it, the outlook is pretty bleak heading in already. Yeah, they they play in the top, most top heavy division in the league, right? Like, there's killers in that division. I think the one open spot might be that Boston starts to fall off a little bit because at a certain point, you expect maybe the age of their top players starts to impact, and you know Rask is out for who knows how long if he ends up signing again after his surgery. I, I like Linus Allmark, but I don't know if he's equal to that task. And then you look at just the losses that they've taken on D over the last couple of years. There's room there where I could see Boston declining, especially considering you look at their trend over the last four years or so. And each year they've actually gotten worse in terms of like all the analytics. So there is, there's an opening there if the Canadians were to put things together, but there, there was, this was going to be a step back no matter what Shea Weber's gone, right? Like that's yeah, a exactly. huge hole that they have no ability to replace. There's just, you're not finding that level of defenseman at all in, in the summer. It's just not going to happen. So even if say like things break perfectly for them and uh, Norlander comes in and he's superb top four guy, I still think that they're in a very struggling situation. And I, I also have severe doubts about what Ben Sherratt can bring to the lineup without Shea Weber as his wingman. Uh, you look at his results in isolation and they're just really not great. You know, he kind of turned it around a little bit in the playoffs last year, but started out awful uh, and at times has dragged Weber down, you know? So even a guy as good as Weber has been drugged down by a guy who they've committed a lot of money to. So it, it's a team that doesn't have as much mobility as some other teams that are in that competitive window. And they also have players like Arpin mentioned, like, Carrie Price, Jeff Petrie, who are in their mid to late thirties that they need to compete now. And I think draft picks are just not an option for them. Uh, Dvorak, I think is a good player on a value deal. So it makes sense that he's a guy that Bergevin is eyeing up, but I don't think he moves the needle. I think they're in a situation right now where they have to make a decision of whether they're going to blow things up completely and try to build around the young players for like four or five years from now. Or if they think they can get it done in the next couple of years with those young players accented by veterans. And if they think they can, they have to make a big move. At a certain point, you got to stop stockpiling things and stop relying on excuses of like, oh, no one wants to come to Montreal or no trade clause. Everybody has a no trade clause. Put on your big boy pants. You're an adult. This is your job. Convince people to come. You know, have Thomas Placanic call up Thomas Hurdle and say, listen, this is a great place to play. They will love you here. He has a crazy no trade clause where I think it's only three teams that he's allowed to, uh, or that he can put forward. He can waive his no trade clause. Anybody can waive a no trade clause or a new mo no movement clause. If he actually wants out of San Jose, they should be knocking down the door. Eichel is a bit different story because there's so much of a, a risk there with the injury and the surgery. You don't even know if he's going to play this year. So that's probably not as attractive to them at this moment in time. But again, if they're thinking the next couple of years, 
having a star center is a big deal. I think we'd probably be viewing this whole situation much differently if the Canadians had retained Phil Deneau. But if they lose Phil Deneau and Kokaniemi in the same offseason, I just don't know that there's a feasible thing that they can do to be competitive this year. The problem here is that it's okay for, like, we can talk this way. You know, Mm -hmm. we can look at the situation realistically and say, you know, and you're right. I think Boston might be the one vulnerable team in the four teams that Dimitri was was sort of referring to earlier, but I think everyone's going to have in various orders, you know, Toronto, Boston, Tampa, and Florida in whatever order you want to put them in, you know, probably Tampa first, Toronto second, I would go, you know, Boston third, Florida fourth, or maybe flip-flop Boston and Florida. But either way, it's going to be hard for the Canadians to crack that. But as a professional sports organization, I mean, this is what I think we're all guilty of all the time is that we're, you know, we're looking at it from 10,000 feet and we can say, well, realistically, you're not going to make, I mean, athletes don't think that way. And maybe management should think that way. And they do think that way more than athletes do, but there are, you know, most of these general managers are former athletes and they, and they do have a certain, like, you know, that's what, this is why we play the games aspect to them or attitude to them, which is not entirely wrong. You know I mean? I, think, I mean, look at this last playoffs. <laughs> exactly. Like that's why you play the games and, and the Canadians got the ultimate proof of it. So, you know, I think the last playoffs gave everyone on that team a taste of, of what playoff success can look like. And it's, they're going to be really reluctant to, to just sort of delay that when the age curve for uh, too many of their important players doesn't allow for a delay here. But so are we talking right now though, and framing it this way about the appetite to walk away from Kakanyemi or the appetite to actually keep the first and third they get as opposed to flip them for another center, because we're talking obviously about a 20 year old player, 21 year old player who could conceivably get much better moving forward over the next couple of years. But he is also a player they were willingly keeping out of their lineup and was playing third line minutes for them, even when he was playing. So to frame it as this guy is the linchpin for them, acknowledging their holes down the middle as the difference between them going for another run, as opposed to taking a step back seems a bit bizarre to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, well, that's, it's, they don't definitely don't feel like he's the linchpin, right? I don't think so. The no, I don't think itself. so. I don't think so either. They don't think he's the linch. Well, they do think, okay, well, they, here's the thing is that, no matter what the organization thinks of Yasperi Kakanyemi, he was and is part of their long-term plan right. to be a competitive team. He, him and Nick Suzuki are the, are the sort of the building blocks of their forward group. They just didn't feel that Kakanyemi was ready for that immediately, but they definitely had a belief that he would be that guy. So it's not that he's a linchpin for their success this season, but I do think that the organization sees Kakanyemi as somewhat of a linchpin for their success down the road. So that's why this decision is complicated for them, because if he was that linchpin already, it would be a no brainer. You match and you move on and that's the end of it, but he's not that linchpin right now, but the Canadians still do think he will become that. So, you know, what do you, what do you do? I mean, otherwise, if they didn't think he was going to become that, then it's clear you don't match. And if he was that right now, then it's clear you matched. But he's in this in-between phase, um, which Carolina, you know, quite smartly is exploiting at the moment with this with this offer sheet. But that's, you know, the Canadians have to, for a team that has had, let's call it development issues, player development issues over the years, they're going to have to rely on their player development projections and 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 figure out if they can get Jesperi Kakanyemi to the finish line of being a second line center, even if he's not one right now. And if they do, if they believe that, 
then I, I do think they should match. But the thing is, is that I'm not hundred percent convinced that they believe that. Like, I don't, I'm not hundred percent convinced that they know that let's say they, even if they believe it, that's one thing, but I don't know that they know that they can get this guy to where they want him to be. And that's why it's such a difficult decision for them. Yeah. Right? That's like, that's the kind of the toughest thing, right? Is if they don't believe that he's going to be worth his like minimum qualifying offer two years or a year from now, they can't match. Well, right? yeah, if he's not going to exactly. be worth 5.1 to 5.5, two years from now, there's no way that they can match it. Cause that's just, it's too much that they don't believe in. Right. I, I do wonder if we had seen Kokanami play with somebody who had fit his style a little bit more often last season, if he'd spent more time with Toffoli because his numbers with Toffoli were actually really stellar. If the opinions of the organization would be more solid, but you, I do completely empathize with them that it is unknown whether he can reach that potential. We yeah. haven't seen the consistency that he can show that he can do that. Right. And I think it is, you kind of alluded to there, it's an important distinction to make. Like right now, he would be a $6.1 million player. I, I believe they're not beholden to that as a figure though, right? I think they can like, right. they can go through arbitration the following year and bring it down to 5.2 conceivably. I, I don't, I still, regardless of what he did this coming season as a second line center, I don't see how he would be awarded more than that at this point, uh, barring some sort of a remarkable leap in production. But there is also, it could be a move point if you negotiate a longer term contract and bring that figure down as well. Like there's a lot of moving parts there. I do wonder, like we've been talking about kind of the optics of this and the message for Bergeron to sell and stuff. I think part of it is it's a really tough pill to swallow and that this is the highest pick they've ever made. They don't have a track record of nailing first round picks. And it also looks like the Hurricanes and Kotkaniemi to an extent are kind of strong arming him here, which is funny because he's got the literally the strongest arms in the entire league. So for Bergevin <laughs> to be strong, is, uh, it's a story that writes itself. But would you agree that there's a massive competitive advantage still right now, like in a league that is... It is at a snail's pace, but it is getting smarter and the competitive advantages are becoming harder and harder to find. I do still believe that being able to critically evaluate your own players, especially young players, is so important in the sense that if you acknowledge a mistake and you can move on from a young player before other teams realize they're not necessarily what they were built to be, not saying that Kotkaniemi fits this, by the way, I'm just saying as a theoretical here for the Canadians, um, just as a general principle, it feels like teams are so beholden to draft status and, oh, this guy, like you, mm -hmm. you hear it all the time. Kotkaniemi was a former third overall pick just three years ago. Like what a tough pill to swallow for them to move on. But if he's not that type of a talent and you can move on and still get a decent return without you know, picking up the tab on this next contract of his, like it's, yeah, it's a bad look optically, but I do think it saves you a lot of headaches down the road and still gives you a chance to kind of pivot here, as opposed to just kind of doubling down on the mistake, just because you did already spend that third overall pick. Like the fact that he was picked third overall, I guess, speaks to the theoretical talent he has, but is completely irrelevant to me in terms of describing him as a player at this point of his career. Would you agree with that? Well, it's almost like it's a, doubly hard thing for the Canadians to do, right? Because he was a reach at that spot. So they were already saying like, Hey, we're smarter than everyone else. We know something that everyone else doesn't know. We're going to take this guy really high. And now to be able to three years later, walk away from it. I think that's just, it's a very tough thing for them to do organizationally because it is, it is admitting not only that he isn't what they thought, but that they weren't smarter than everyone else. Right. So it, I think that's a doubly hard thing for them to do and why I kind of expect them to match. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, 
I don't know how much of a reach he was by the time the draft got there. Like, I think he wouldn't have made it past five. So, you know, I mean, five was Barrett Hayton to Arizona. I'm pretty sure they would have taken Cockney if he was there. So, I mean, he did, he did shoot up towards the end of the, the draft cycle, if you will, um, after his U18s um, with Finland, where he was really good. But to, to your, I think to your greater, to your overall point, Dimitri, I agree with you that, that learning when to trade away potential and get the return on potential is, is probably the next great frontier. What I think, where I think the competitive advantage would be in establishing not only that, but just in making sure that you like teams that understand their players on a personal level, like teams that teams that are able to tailor make their, the way they handle players based on that player's specific needs. Like those teams are the ones that are going to be at a real advantage because they're going to be able to do what you just mentioned, which is identify when it's time to, to cut a player loose and, and when the time, you know, when you understand, when you understand that a player is just not going to be what you think he's going to be, but the rest of the league doesn't know that. And you could trade that player and get something in return. But also before you get to that point, maybe you can identify the problems before they become problems and you can, and you can cut them off at the pass and you can, you know, I, listen, I cover the Canadians. I don't cover any other team all that closely, but I do know that oftentimes in the last few years from talking to these players, uh, the communication hasn't been great. And, and sometimes they're left in the dark. When Kakademi was scratched in Los Angeles, he did not understand why for months, <laughs> like really oh. even after, even after his exit meetings, he didn't fully understand what had happened. So that's a problem, you know, like that's an issue that, that I don't think is unique to Montreal. I think, I think there are a lot of teams that have this issue um, and I agree that that would be a competitive advantage on both sides of it, on making sure that you're, the, the players that you spent a lot of draft capital on uh, fulfill that potential that you saw in them. And also in realizing that, you know, okay, it's not going to work out with this guy. Let's try and get something for him and get more for him than we will if we just let it drag on and, and let him just sort of be this middling player for another year or two. Um, would be another way. But I mean, I do think that there's a general disconnect between management and players at the NHL level that, that needs to change. And that's, that's probably something that we're going to see change um, over the coming years, because I think more and more teams are understanding that this generation of players are not the same as even seven or eight years ago. They were, they, they've changed a lot in the last little while. Yeah. Dimitri, are you saying that the big skill in the NHL is to know when to hold them and when to fold them? I really wish you'd have said it that way, actually. Now that now that Andrew mentioned it, like that would have been way cooler. Well, actually, <laughs> no, border, no, it would have st- been cooler. It actually would have been awful, but still. <laughs> after my strong arm joke about Bergevin, I feel like I uh, that, that that one was enough for me. But no, I, I do, I, I really do believe that that's kind of an under talked about thing because we're so often, you know, you're like you're looking at the trade market and you're looking at free agency. And you're trying to uncover these gems from other teams and trying to poach talent and and improve your team that way. But I do think it's a lot more difficult to fairly evaluate the players you already have in place, especially if you've invested in them already. Um, it, it just it, see time and time again, the teams are so um, caught up with this draft status idea of where a guy was taken years ago, even if he's not necessarily that player anymore. And I do think there is an ability to capitalize on that. If you feel that, that he's not going to live up to that potential. So that's kind of the point I was trying to make. Beyond yeah. Look that. at, I mean, look at like what the Blackhawks just did with Boakvist, right? Boakvist went eighth in that same draft as Svechnikov and Kokaniemi. 
they go, they get Seth Jones. Listen, you know, the contract's terrible, but fine. They, they, they used Boquist to go out and get a premier defenseman. No matter what you think of Seth Jones, what you're talking about is what the Blackhawks did. You know, well, like, I, mean, they, I think they, of. I think they incorrectly evaluated Boquist in that case. Maybe, right. but that's, but that's, that that's doing, but that's the risk you have to take, right? Like, I mean, we don't have the information that they had. Maybe they didn't incorrectly. Maybe we'll see what happens. Yeah, you know, see. I mean, it's like, but it's that's the move that you're talking about, and that's why teams are reluctant to do that. Because if Boquist goes and becomes a better defenseman than Seth Jones in Columbus, then Chicago has egg on their face, and that's why I think most teams hang on to their draft picks longer than they should because they're worried. And right now, I'm sure that conversation is happening in the Montreal front office. If Kakaniemi goes to Carolina and rips it up, we're going to look like idiots. And we can't have that. Well, and I, I think that goes on in too many front offices, frankly. Kotkaniemi, to be clear, if he goes to Carolina, he will look better than he's looked so far. Like, I, yeah, I think regardless of development or anything, they're going to put him in a better position in that system with the talent around him. Well, and they want to look smart too, player. right? And yeah, and they're I personally think I personally think if Kotkaniemi stays in Montreal, he'll look better than he has so far as well. Like, he will, he will be given an opportunity and he will be given the best opportunities had. And so he's reached, you know, he's entering his fourth NHL season. He's 21 years old. It's a very unique set of circumstances with this player. There's not many players who can say that. So I, I don't, I, you know, it's, it, it's not, I think the situation in Carolina might be better for him. But I do think that if he, he were to stay in Montreal, I think he would have the best season he's had so far. I, I don't, you know, the, the bar is low there. So I don't, I feel very comfortable saying that. Whether he'll be worth six million dollars this year or next or the year after, that's the question. That's different. That's a whole different conversation. Uh Andrew, do you have any any closing thoughts on on the situation or Kotkanami or what have you? Arp and you as well. Like I feel like we've kind of covered most of it here, but is there anything we've uh we've kind of omitted so far? No, I, I think the main thing the main takeaway that I have from this whole situation is that. Uh, the Canadians kind of put themselves here by not figuring this out sooner. They probably could have got things done a little bit earlier with Kokaniemi if they weren't playing such hardball. And I think that teams have taken advantage of having all the negotiating power with RFAs that don't have access to arbitration for too long and been comfortable that uh, teams aren't going to offer sheet and maybe that'll change. But also, like, credit to Carolina for tendering this offer sheet in the first place. Like, this is, of all the offer sheets that have taken place over the last decade or so, the one that seems to put the opposing team in the worst position. Like, in a lot of ways, I think you could say that no matter what the Canadians choose to do, it's a bit of a lose-lose situation. Yeah, what I take away from this is that it is absolutely scandalous that no one offer sheeted any of the Tampa Bay Lightning players over the last three years. Yes, yes. Yeah, especially that's Eric, my, Eric, Eric Chernak for sure. Eric yeah. Chernak is the one that just, I mean, let's, okay, I take that back. That no team convinced a player on the Tampa Bay Lightning to sign an offer sheet in True. the last we don't three know years. Is, yeah, we don't know, but Eric Chernak was the poster child for that. This year it was Alex Barry Boulet, who would have been an interesting one, would just, you know, just this lower you know, a, a contract at $2 million a year, losing a player on an offer sheet of $2 million a year would be interesting. But yeah, that's what Carolina has done to Montreal. Tampa Bay has been vulnerable to for years and no one has touched them. And it's a miracle. I don't, I don't know what they put in the water down there, but either the players are so, um, are so bought in to the, the chance of winning a cup, which is probably a very real and an actual factor for them. Uh, but it's pretty miraculous that they haven't been they haven't been targeted by anyone. I think it comes like 
just like with Aho, just like now with Gagami, like they literally, like the Hurricanes made him an offer he couldn't possibly refuse. Right. Yeah. I think it boils oh, down to that. Like, like, yeah, of course, players have sort of agency here in terms of if they like their situation or they want to stay or they want to figure it out long term in their current destination. You can't force a player to sign an offer sheet. But I, I don't care what Montreal had done. If they had played him on a first line for, for years, uh, if you're getting offered 6.1 million for one year when your market is probably 2.5 million, like every single player in the league is going to take that deal. And so I, I, yeah. that's what it kind of boils down to for me. That's why he'll be welcomed with open arms in the Canadians dressing room if ever they match. Like they they won't the, the players won't care. The players will be like, you know, fist yeah. bumping him left, Nick, right, Nick, and center. Nick Suzuki's yeah. gonna be fist bumping for sure. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, and like, who just got the most negotiating power in the world is Nick Suzuki, especially if they don't match. Like, just line up the money truck for Nick Suzuki. Yeah, Ryan Suzuki. If they don't well. if they don't match, then then Carolina's coming after Suzuki next year. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. That's all right. I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm going to pencil in that, that podcast for next off right. season. Um, all right. Well, this is a blast. Arpin, I'll let you go first, plug some stuff. Where can people check you out? What are you working on these days? And then Andrew, I'll let you go after that. Uh, the athletic.com. We have a 50% off sale for new subscribers as we do from time to time as uh, NFL season is uh, upon us and NHL and NBA training camps are coming up. So if you click on any athletic story um, written by anyone, Basically, you'll get an opportunity to subscribe for 50% off and uh, and enjoy our coverage of every major sport in North America and uh, English football in the UK. Um, so really a great deal, a great price. Uh, give us a shot for a year. All right. And I've got uh, my Crosscheck NHL show on the Locked On Podcast Network. And I've got something else that I can't actually talk about yet. But uh, watch my Twitter in October. What you can't do that, man. Come on. Jeez. No, I know. I, I can't Give talk Dimitri about it. Give exclusive for crying watch, out loud. What watch my Twitter. What a, what a right. line. I can't think of a less appealing thing to do than to just watch <laughs> your Twitter for an entire month. <laughs> Thanks, Arpan. Thanks. <laughs> that sounds terrible. All right, guys. Well, this is a blast. I, I know it's a busy time, so I appreciate you taking the time to chat. And uh, we'll see how this goes. And we'll have you both back on the show sometime down the road. So uh, until then, enjoy the rest of this offseason while we have it as we head into next season. Yeah, Suzuki offer sheet 22. <laughs> All right, that's going to be it for today's episode of the Hockey PDO cast. Thanks as always for listening. Hopefully, you enjoyed our breakdown and deep dive of the Asperi Kakinami offer sheet and the situation around it. Certainly, a lot to unpack there, and, and we tried to do our best to kind of cover it all from all angles as we approach uh, Montreal's decision here on whether they're going to match or not. It was a uh, a weird month not doing the PDO cast in August. I certainly needed the little break after the hectic end to July with all the coverage we did here on this feed. So uh, hopefully you yourself enjoyed the little break in action and, and the summer and the off season. And uh, hopefully you're ready for, for another hockey season here and are going to follow along and uh, join us for the ride. So the plan, uh, for those of you wondering moving forward, is the rest of September we're probably going to do kind of the usual one podcast per week here on a, on a variety of different topics. Uh, and then as we approach the end of the month and head into the start of October, we're really going to ramp up the preview content. Uh, we're going to do all of the usual annual uh, preseason stages that we do here on this feed so looking forward to all of that and yeah it's going to be it's going to be a fun fun ride so looking forward to to getting back into the swing of things uh if you uh either 
missed the, the PDO cast over the month it was off or are happy it's back now or are looking forward to the coming season, uh, please consider helping the show out by leaving a quick little rating and review on the show's feed. Uh, you can just hit the five-star button if you're feeling extra generous or, or extra happy that, that it's back and, and the season is, is just around the corner. Uh, you can leave a, a little review and either let other people know uh, why they should check out the show if they haven't done so already or what you enjoy about it. And uh, yeah, a lot of you have done so already and I really appreciate each and every one of you that have and uh, hopefully the rest of you that have been holding out are going to do so here soon and yeah that's going to be it for today's show uh, we're going to be back next week with another episode and uh, after that it's going to be back to regularly scheduled programming so uh, looking forward to it and it's good it's good to be back Thank you.